Let me, as we consider John 12 and closing out this ministry of Jesus, just remind you something that I'm sure you're familiar with. As you read the Gospels, whether it's in your devotional time or through study or whatever, you find that there is a a variety of ways that people respond to the ministry of Jesus. His his ministry, his person, his preaching, uh, what he what he has been doing among the people of his day. And and Matthew really records at the beginning of his ministry just the, the way in which he captures his disciples. Uh, through the brief interaction that he has with them and his sermon, and he looks at these men and he says, drop everything you got and I'll make you fishers of men. And, and they, lo and behold, they drop their livelihood, they drop their, their lives literally, and they go and follow Jesus. As you read through Matthew's gospel, it isn't very long that you find he is flooded with a multitude of people seeking him for miracles of healing and just to see what he's going to do next and hear what he's going to say next. In fact, that long, glorious sermon on the mount in chapters 5 through 7, we see the conclusion of that, that the multitude was astonished at his teaching his boldness that he spoke, not like the leaders of their day. And so they, they were amazed at him. They marveled at his ability to cast out demons and that the demons themselves would obey when he says, get out and get going. And some rejoiced in him and worshipped him as he healed them and as he spoke to them. Some wept because of him. Some left him in great sorrow and and, and great distress. I think about the rich young man who comes to him. We think he's a rich young man who comes to him asking what he can do to have eternal life. And we know as he leaves, he went away weeping bitterly because of Jesus' words. Uh, some, even his disciples, had moments of seeing Jesus and his glory demonstrated that they were filled with, uh, with fear, great amount of fear not understanding who he was and what he was able to do when he calmed a storm and and told the winds to stop it. You and I say stop it to a lot of things, but I'm sure that uh, we don't get the same result, do we? The Bible says, speaking of that encounter in the disciples' life, they were more afraid of Jesus than they were the storm. And yet at other times, remarkably enough, yet at other times the disciples are so oblivious and and just kind of um, numb, dull when it comes to what Jesus says and what he does. Uh, One account in the Gospels remind us that his own family, thinking him to be crazy, went to go get him from the multitude and kind of shush him from his public ministry. Uh, The Gospel is filled with ways and much like we see in our own culture in our own uh, context of responses to the life and ministry to the gospel of Jesus Christ, even in this room. Some of you here at the, at the, at the message of the gospel, at understanding who Jesus is, have, have really committed your life to following him, forsaking everything and, and everything that you held on to in one way or another. Others, I'm sure, are have been filled with curiosity about the Christian religion and and about what it is all about and maybe nothing more. Still, some find themselves lightly committed to this 
Jesus of Nazareth in the gospel and the biblical message. A variety of responses and what you see is really a mixture of those who believe and those who do not believe in all of its varied manifestations. With all the responses to the ministry of Jesus, nothing is more more striking, nothing is more unexpected without, without having a, a, a familiar understanding of the New Testament when you, when you read it. Nothing is more just surprising than what we find in the gospel account, and that is the Jews wholly, in large, rejected him. Out of all the responses, out of all the things that we could have anticipated, This deadly persistence of unbelief, despite all the evidence that Jesus has showed to them day after day for three and a half years, a a Jewish Messiah, his teaching ministry, performing miracles, doing good, all of the things that he did in line with the Old Testament. And yet, as Stephen would tell them later on, you always resist the Holy Spirit like our fathers did. It is shocking. Just a bit of the context that we find ourselves in John chapter number 12. And I mentioned this maybe last week or the, a couple of weeks ago when we were in this, uh, te- or when we were in this chapter. Uh, we are closing the end of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, and it is fitting that when we come to the end of Jesus' ministry, we find Uh, really uh, an invitation and a a commentary on the response of that invitation in the text in front of us. But but this is the end of Jesus' public ministry. And and as he's coming to an end, uh, what some people refer to as the end of the book of signs. Uh, They look at that as saying at the end of John chapter number 12, his attention is going to focus on the intimate relationship with his disciples and, and it will declare the glory of Jesus on the cross. He'll be speaking to them personally, preparing them for what lies ahead. So he moves from public to a more private setting. And yet here at the end of this, he offers yet another call to believe and walk in the light. We've seen that in verse 35 and 36. It's a fitting ending to the ministry of Jesus. We know that John wrote the letter of John for the very purpose that after seeing him and hearing about him and knowing what he did, that you might believe in him and follow him. But as fitting as it is at the end of his ministry, I must say, just in my own flesh, it is quite surprising Because as Jesus offers again to the multitude, uh, to the people that he's speaking to in the context here, he is speaking to a people who is already put into place, which Jesus is well aware of, we know, uh, put into place the plan and plot to kill him and put him to death. You see this mercy and forbearance of God, this, this, this kind of call one more time, and it is a reminder to us that our Our greatest need in our time is the same need of the people in Jesus' time. That is to see him and and follow him, respond to him. And we see the dire consequences if we do not. And hungry, uh, Ed had mentioned what the joy of preaching through an interpreter. uh, And I tried to get the simplest message I could think of and what was on my heart. And that is basically that our greatest need is to see Jesus and to follow Jesus and to proclaim Jesus. 
that is one more offer, one more call that he gives to these people, beginning in verse number 35. I have three words, really, that I've, I've divided this up. It may be helpful for you, may not be, just kind of helpful for me. I wanted to look at first the invitation of Jesus. We'll consider the explanation and then the motivation. And, and Lord willing, it'll all come together and make sense. Amen. Read with me verse 35 and 36. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk in the light as you have the light. Let's darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. I was thinking of a final call. A boarding call this uh, Monday, we were walking through Frankfurt, Germany, uh, kind of like that what power walking that people do. You know, they're not walking, they're not running, they're confused. I'm not sure what's going on there. So we were doing this not because we needed exercise, uh, but because we were about to stay in Hungary or Germany another night, and we decided that was not a good idea. We wanted to go home. And so we were moving through the airport. The grace of God, we walked right to the gate and walked right onto the plane, which was really nice because we didn't have to stand an hour and a half waiting for the line to go through and everyone to get seated. It was not nice because you had to find somewhere to put your bag. What you see here in some ways is Jesus' last call, his last word to the people. While he is with them, while he is among them, this late hour in the ministry of Jesus' life, he is giving one more opportunity, one more encouragement, one more command to walk in the light and to believe him. And what is he calling them to do exactly? What is he, what is he saying to these people? And, I, and the only reason I say that is because sometimes we can assume we know what's going on and and I do that quite often. And if you've not been in here, he says, walk in the light. Well, you have the light and, uh, and the darkness is coming. It will overtake you. And so what does he mean by that? What is he actually telling these people? Well, for three and a half years, he had been preaching to them that he had been sent from God. He had been performing miracles in front of them that he has been sent by God. And God is with him. His word is from uh, the same word that has been given to him from the Father. He is calling these people to, to put their faith and trust in him, to lean on him, to believe in him, to, to follow him. He mentions in John 8, using this same metaphor, that he was the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's not just calling people to write living or, or write expressions of Judaism or any of those things. And this is one of the, the things that irritated the leaders of his day. He's calling people to himself. That's a very arrogant call if he is not who he says he is. But over and over, God has vindicated, validated. He has affirmed that he is sent from him. He is calling men and women to himself. It's a very thing that he's doing in our day. Being this light of the world is the one who has come to show us the Father. He is the one to lead us back to God. As the gospel is preached, the Bible is open. It is, it is a book about living and morality and about good and evil and all the things that we could get out of it. But chiefly, first and foremost, it is a message to lead us back to God. We are, we're lost in our ignorance and we're lost in our blindness and our sin. And, 
And so Jesus enters into this dark world to dispel the lies and the falsehood that we have lived in, the grips of paganism and the sinful passions which people have been enslaved by so that you and I might be children of light. It's Ephesians 5.8. And you know what? This glorious work happens as the gospel is preached and as you repent it and as you put your faith in Jesus Christ, a light that cannot be extinguished. So Jesus is, is telling them this last invitation, verse 54, as he speaks, speaks to these people. I'm sorry, verse 35. As he speaks to these people, he says something good in 54 too, but the light of this world is among you for a little while longer. So walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. Isn't that an offer of mercy? You see in this offer of, again, to follow him and to be in the light, a display of the patience and goodness of God. His long-suffering to a people that he has stretched forth his hand for generations and generations who have continually, continually slapped it away in essence. And yet again, an offer of mercy that while we were in darkness, we might have, a, have this gift of walking in the light this time to, to call us again to put aside our sin and to follow him. It's not only a, a word of mercy, it's also a word of urgency, isn't it? You know, I think one of the words we've lost in our, our Christian language today is the word today. The word now. The idea that, that while we, we may put off many things in this world, some of us are procrastinators by, by default. That's kind of our natural inclination. There is one thing that we cannot procrastinate or put off. And that is how we will respond to Jesus Christ in the gospel message. Notice he said, it is only for a little while that the light is with you. And the consequence of not heeding this call is that this darkness, which he, he, he means, I think, sin and all of its ramifications, will overtake you. It will enslave you. So while you have the light and this brief moment that it is here in front of you, walk in it. For this time of clarity which they've experienced, is soon to be removed. A Hebrew writer reminds us that, doesn't he? And I think it's chapter 4 where he says, today is the day of salvation, now is the accepted time. That's, that's the time God is moving and stirring. That's the time we respond to him and, and respond to his word. I would say that's even true for us Christians. When is it time to serve God? It's always time to serve God now. When is it time to, to be obedient, listen to his word, submit to his word? It is when God is dealing with our hearts. Again, I think, and maybe it is the, the trick of the world or the idea of too much leisurely time or whatever it may be, we've lost our sense of urgency. And that God would help us recapture that. So there's this invitation that Jesus gives to them. But notice the explanation or a commentary on their unbelief. We find that in verse 37 through 43. 
John is now speaking, giving some understanding to why we see by and large part a Jewish Messiah promised by Old Testament Scripture. Fulfilling Old Testament Scripture in, in, in the moment, doing all the things that he did, why a Jewish Messiah would be rejected, condemned, put to death, why this would take place. He's writing maybe later on after the other Gospels were written, maybe after A.D. 70 at some point later in the ministry of his life. And then reflecting back on this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he gives us a commentary on why we see things unfolding the way they are. Why did they reject him? Why the outcome? This is the very thing Jesus laments in Matthew 23. You know, he's coming into Jerusalem. He decries the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the scribes and pronounces cursing on them, pronounces a judgment on, on, on Israel ultimately and the scribes and Pharisees as he says, woe unto you, woe unto you. That prophetic language of destruction is coming. This is an offense against you. And, and as he goes on in verse 37 of Matthew 23, he says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who have been sent to you. How often I would have gathered you, your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Why such wholesale unbelief? Well, we could say, and it's probably good to mark off. Well, maybe they just didn't have enough proof. Maybe they didn't have enough evidence that, that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And notice John deals with that right off the bat. Verse 37. He had done so many signs before them. In fact, he says at the end of this gospel narrative that if it was recorded all that he did, the world couldn't contain the books. It wasn't because of lack of evidence. It wasn't because it wasn't clear or they didn't understand his words. He he had done signs before them and even the chief climax, there was a man in their midst living near them just two miles from Jerusalem, five miles, something of that nature that, that was once dead and is now alive. Why unbelief? And so John tells us they still did not believe because they were under the judgment of God. Notice he draws from two texts in Isaiah. The first one, Isaiah 53.1. You know that famous passage speaking of the suffering servant. And he says in verse number 38, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us or has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Implying no one has. Not by and large part. Now, not no one, period, because he had followers, he had disciples. But by and large part, the message was not received. Then he adds to that. Isaiah 6, verse number 10, that vision where he sees the Lord high and lifted up on his throne in all of his glory. And John is saying Isaiah saw his glory just as Israel saw his glory walking among them and, 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 and in seeing his glory, 
God commissions Isaiah to go out and preach to the nation. But notice what he says, therefore they could not believe. Isn't that a difficult thing to read? What do you mean? He's not talking about permission. He's talking about they had not the ability to believe. They were a sign. They were, they were judged by God. He says they could not believe. It, it, this is playing out according to the predetermined plan of God. Why could they not believe? He says again, verse number 40, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Who, who's the He? God has judged Israel. The generation of Jesus blinding their eyes and hardening their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and then I would heal them. You and I love to meditate on the mercy and long-suffering and forbearance of God and I would say that is something we should revel in and spend much time to think about. But even after a hundred years of building an ark, Noah was shut up in it and judgment came. If this tells me anything or, or presses against us anything, we should never presume upon the grace of God because we have no assurance of tomorrow and you have no assurance that you will be who you are tomorrow. The judgment of God upon the nation of Israel was blindness and they were left in their unbelief. And even even today, in large part, Israel has rejected their Messiah. Now that's not to say there's not a remnant God has preserved among the Jews. I was reading in one site, it says there's roughly 350,000 Messianic Jews around the world. Praise God for that. And I think God will again revisit and do a revival work among the Jewish nation. But I'm just saying by in large part, what we see is the playing out of the judgment of God upon the nation of Israel. So they were under the judgment of God. But notice, and, and it should be worth saying, if they were under the judgment of God, then, then none of it was their fault. But that's not what the text is telling us, nor what the Bible teaches us. These men were acting out their own sinful desires. You might recall in the Old Testament, God is said to harden Pharaoh's heart ten times. Pharaoh is said to harden his own heart ten times. So which is it? It's both, isn't it? The great privilege of being in Jesus' day to see what those men saw, to live in in an era where the, the hype of the Messiah, the miracles that were taking place, to be caught up in the moment, the movement. He commanded demons to flee from people as we have already considered. He fed multitudes with virtually nothing and no naysayer was able to stick anything to him to bring condemnation or to trick him up. There was no wisdom like his. There was no power like his. There was no compassion like his. There was no one like him. And yet in all of this, They dismissed him, claimed he had a demon, rejected him, plotted against him. What measure of folly and blindness do we see in the New Testament? 
Of course, the fruit of this rebellion is not only in the blindness that they ex- that they experienced during this season in Jesus' ministry, but also in the fruit of that which would take place in A.D. 70 and the devastation of Jerusalem. But this should not surprise us. It should not marvel us. Romans 1 tells us three times that of that judicial act of God, His judgment on a nation that rejects the light and the knowledge of Him, they, they hold the truth of God in unrighteousness. They, they press it down. And, and the Bible says God's judgment on them first is giving them their own way. Three times God gives them over to their own appetites. Three times he gives them over to their own passions. And you see this kind of, this, this rock rolling down the hill and the speed of it going faster and faster. The devastation of the nation which takes place because God gave them over to their own wants. Lifting the restraint. I can't help but think that this is a current picture of our nation. And we wonder, will God judge us? Will he ever judge us? I want to just look at the leaders we got today. Will God judge us? Are they not a manifestation of our own appetites and our own lust and our own carnal desires? The wickedness that rules over us? The manifestation of our unbridled passions, our pastimes, our streets are filled with Uh, Our streets are filled with violence. The church's enormous footprint in the United States. But the little fruit and little effect. As Paul says somewhere back in 2022, 63% of Americans claim to be Christian. But that's a charge that would never stick if we were held up in court. Will God judge a nation who has received such blessing, such light, such truth, such revelation, and who has met that truth and light repeatedly over and over with unbelief? I think we're living in the middle of it. And what a word to our own community. I cannot help but think how much preaching goes on in this area. Not just in the churches and the Christian camps throughout the summer over and over. is this continual influence and continual word of God going out. And, and what will it be like once we meet that word with unbelief as a whole in our area? I speak often with a couple of pastors from New England as we try to encourage each other. We're just belling water out of a sinking boat it feels like sometimes. And just east of us, once... What's the the high point, the center point of Christianity in America? Ivy League schools training soldiers for the cause of Christ and pastors and ministers now training, training minions of the devil and worldly philosophy and everything evil. Churches that once proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and, and saw the word of God spread and grow in the community now are a platform for the world. We speak about how hard the Christian ministry work is there, how slow it is, how much faithful plotting is needed in that area. Is all lost? No, because God is saving people. He is calling people out of darkness into light. But you see this kind of overall effect. Will God, by in large part, give a people their own way? The answer is yes.
The answer is yes. They're not working against their will. They're pursuing and and it's manifested that this is the very thing they want. You see that here in verse number 42 and 43. Notice it says, Nevertheless, many, even authorities, believed in him, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogues. It's a weird thing to say when he says that he's given them all to unbelief. And then you tell me, well, but a bunch of leaders are believing in him. Which is it? Well, I take it to mean and understand what he was talking about is that they understood Jesus' claim. They understood the Old Testament scripture. They, they saw what he did. They were able to add. They knew one plus one equals two. And so they put all the pieces together. They heard him preach. They, they could be said to have believed in him. And it is to those Jesus is saying, yeah, you put all the pieces together. You better walk in the light while the light is with you, while it's easy. What will you do when there's a cross involved? It's a word to the uncommitted, those who are holding out, unwilling to do anything drastic. I ask you, is verse 42 and verse 43 speaking of those who have a saving faith or those whom we, we claim to be Christian? I inherited a quote from Ed. He mentioned it on Friday at Men's Bible Study on the dry erase board in my study when we were changing of the guards or whatever you want to call it. From A.W. Tozer. He says this, The man of Pesado faith will fight for his verbal creed but refuse flatly to allow himself to get into a predicament where his future must depend upon that creed being true. He always provides himself with a secondary way of escape so that he, he will have a way, out of, uh, a way out if the roof caves in. What we need very badly these days is a company of Christians who are prepared to trust God as completely now as they know they must do at the, day, at the last day. I think that is exactly right. And that is the very thing lacking in this example for us. They believed, but they did not follow. And why didn't they follow? The very same reason we don't. The very same reason a lot of people have a knowledge about Jesus. They say the Bible is true. They, they have a, a, a familiarity with, with all of its workings, could even explain it. Yet at the end of the day, their life is not marked by faith in Jesus because it is a pursuit for love of glory, but just a temporary one. 43, they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They would not confess him. Well, let me, before we look at the motivation of this, let me just offer a word to what end was this blindness. Well, we can say it was a judgment against Israel and their unbelief, their sin against God. They broke Secondly, we could say it was to bring about the fulfillment of Scripture. Notice earlier, John mentions that, so that the words spoken by the prophet, but not just Scripture here, but the fulfillment of all that would involve in Jesus' death and resurrection. It is through their hardness of heart and God's judgment on them that brought about the world's greatest good, and that is the message of the gospel. Romans 9 through 11 
tell us that passage of scripture that many of us scratch our head and don't know what to do with, but it tells us that this judgment upon the nation of Israel was for the spread of the movement of the gospel among the Gentiles. That the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. You're reminded of Habakkuk, aren't you, when he says, Oh God, in judgment, remember mercy. And yet even here, we see that same thing playing out. The judgment of God in mercy. Well, let me close with verse 44 through 15. I called it motivation. I want to probably call it your joys and losses, whatever you want to call it. But it does speak to us and remind us what's at stake. What is at stake when it comes to Jesus and the message to believe him, to repent and believe him, to follow him? What is on the line and I'd have to say, according to Jesus' words and the rest of the New Testament, everything. Everything's on the line. The most important thing. The most vital thing. We could gain the whole world and we could have it all in this life. And, and yet all of it becomes nothing compared to this reality of what we do with Jesus. Is the chief determiner of heaven and hell. It's a language we used to hear growing up much in the church. There's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. Maybe you ever heard that. Well, the message is still true today. It's a message that rests, pivots upon Jesus. Now notice, he gives us a motivation or a promise to those who believe. He gives us three things here in verse number 44 through 46. You can follow along with me. As Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So here's a promise. Here's the word that he's given to those who believe. What's the motivation of believing or or what's the promise to those who believe? And he says, if you believe in me, you're not just believing in me. This is how you exercise faith in God. I know that sometimes we have heard this, and maybe you've heard it, and people have a, a fondness of God. They, they say that they thank God for certain things in their life. They believe in God. They, uh, they, all the other stuff that we want to say, me and God are on good terms. But what I'm trying to say here, and what Jesus says, we'll say it even more clearly later on, being the way, the truth, and the life, that the only way to exercise faith in Jesus is by exercising faith in Christ. Or faith in God is by exercising faith in Christ. To believe in Jesus is to believe the Father. What does it mean? Well, Jesus said, the very words I say are not my words, but they're the Father's words. The very works I do are not my works, but they're the works that the Father's given me to do. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, God the Father's not standing over there waiting for you to mess up. It is is the work of the Trinity. The gospel is the Trinity at work, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So if we want to exercise faith in God, we exercise it by believing in Jesus. But the second thing he mentions, the one who sees me, sees him who sent me. Now the only way to see the Father and understand fully the Father is by seeing the Son. Isn't that interesting? Out of all the words in the Old Testament, there's a lot of them. I mean, some of you know that. You go through your Bible reading plan and be like, man, it's a long way through that Old Testament. 
And yet all that we are told that the clearest, purest vision of the Father is seen in Jesus Christ. In fact, he says in Matthew 11 that no one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Father except the Son and to whom the Son reveals him. And what is he telling us, church? That to look upon me, to know me, to walk in fellowship with me is to see God in all of his glory, in all of his beauty. He is the, he is the invitable God manifested to us. And so you see, not only exercising faith in God, to exercise faith in God is to believe in Jesus, but to, to know God, to truly know God is to know him through Jesus. The third thing he mentions is, Verse number 46, whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Just by way of uh, participation this morning, how many of you was a child and scared of the darkness? How many of you are still scared of the darkness? How is one rescued from the darkness? By coming to the light, by believing in Jesus. What do we mean by darkness? Well, there's many things that we could point to in the Word of God. Ignorance about God and His will. Our, our bondage to sin. He says we love our sins. We run from the light. That, that sin itself is a darkness, deception. And the doom of death and eternity is a darkness. Where will they be cast out for all eternity in the outer darkness, won't they? And what is our escape from that? How do we avoid that? What has God provided for us so that you and I might face death with hope and, and assurance that when we step out in eternity, we step out into life and light and, and the goodness of God? We, how do we know Him? How do we, how do we find freedom from the bondage of our sin and, and, and the, the brokenness of this world? It's all found in Jesus Christ. There's no other remedy There's no other way. There's no other hope. It's all found in him. And the the beauty of that is, is, is the gospel call and invitation to as many as believed in him gave he the right to become the children of God. And someone here, you may be here this morning, feel like you're in the darkness of your own mind, lost in life and not know which way to go overwhelmed by your sin or at least at least everything guilt and shame that comes along with that and what i want to tell you is there is hope found in jesus christ and he calls even to you now this morning that if you would turn from your sin turn from your own ways and put your faith and trust in him then he would give you everlasting life freedom and assurance of life to come well, this promise of blessing, this motivation uh, is, uh, is good. It's, it's a blessing as it is, but there's also the warning, which in itself is a motivation. And just two things along with this. If you reject Christ, you reject the Father. If you don't believe in Jesus, if you've never received Jesus as your Savior, if you have the wrong Jesus, all the other religions that that preach being right with God, reconciled to God by their own works, by all the other stuff that they can put out there, what, what he's saying here is to reject him is to reject the Father. 
And those who reject the Father are rejected by the Father. They're judged in the last day. Notice verse number 47 and following. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I do not come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. This doesn't mean that God hasn't appointed him as judge. We know the Bible tells us that. He even mentions that earlier on. What it means is he is not, he, he, he's not judging based on prejudice. He, he's not got an axe to grind. He will judge rightfully and truly. And his judgment will be based upon God's message, God's word, God's will. He goes on and says, The one who rejects me does not receive my words, has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a command what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Well, I could not help thinking about Hebrews' writer as he was writing to his hearers. In chapter number two, many places you could go to, but chapter number two, he gives them a great warning as their response to the gospel message when he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The truth is we cannot. What has been your response to Jesus in the gospel message? Between you and God, what has been your response? Have you confessed him? Have you publicly through baptism and association with the body of Christ and following him in your life choices declared I am with him, I'm following him, I'm, I believe in him? Have you, like Tozer said, or one of those who, who claim a familiarity with Jesus, a faith, and even defend that faith and yet will not rest or will not get yourself in a place where you have to rely on that faith? I think his words are very, very provocative, but they are so true and so needed in our day. And that is what we need very badly these days, especially in these days, is a company of Christians who are prepared to trust God and completely now as they know they must do in the last day. Has that been you? When things are easy. And there's not much at stake. I must remind you of Jesus' words, while the light is with you, walk in it, lest darkness overtake you when things are hard and you're hard. Well, I pray that's not the case of you here this morning. If it is, today is the day of salvation, now is the point of time. I'd say church, it gives us a reminder of the grace of God and his long suffering in our life. Do you think back all that he all that he endured and all that he put through? Uh, put up with as we were sinning and rejecting him, yet his loving, enduring patience, continually coming and working, drawing, bringing us to Christ. It gives us a spot not only to walk in sobriety, but to walk in fear. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning that we gather together. It is a a sober word, I pray that in some ways an encouraging one and an instructive one to us. Even reading it in the thoughts of my mind, so many things that you could say and not say. And Lord, I pray that you would 
use it for the edification of your church, for the building up of the body of Christ. I pray it'd be a warning. We live in something of a Christian atmosphere in this area in some many circles that no one here would be one of those who who would believe in him and yet live in fear, seeking the glory of this world, not confess him. So we pray, God, that you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen.